Our Bible reading this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 26, verses 69 through 75. Matthew 26, 69 through 75. That is found on page 1,549 in your pew Bibles. And as Aaron has already mentioned, this is the last of our sermon series on failures and faithfulness. Um, looking at biblical characters who had failed, um, there's been six of them, and we're sort of starting and beginning with, with classic ones, right? The first one was Adam and Eve, right? That's a classic favor, uh, failure story. And also now we're, we're finishing with Peter's denial, and I think you'd also agree that that also is a very well-known classic failure story. And let me also say this, um, when I decided to do this sermon series and started writing down possible sermon text, I was shocked by how many failure stories I had to choose from. So six is only tip of the iceberg here. Um, but these are the ones we chose, and this is the one we're finishing with. Listen to the story of Peter's denial. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You were also with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know that man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. I think most of you probably know the story of George Washington and the apple tree. No, cherry tree. See, look at that. That's what, that's what happens when Canadians start telling American stories. <laughs> Goodness. I think most of you know the story of George Washington, the cherry tree, a lot better than me. <laughs> right? Of all the, the, the stories of, of American forefathers, it's probably one of the best known. And it is so well known that even boys who grew up in Canada like me... Um, have it as part of our imagination. The story sort of creeps north of the border, and so we sort of know the bare outlines of it. It goes something like this, as if I need to tell you. George Washington has his sixth birthday, and his father gives him the gift of a brand new hatchet, and he's very pleased with this new hatchet, and he can't wait to use it. And he chooses, while his father is gone, to use it on his father's favorite cherry tree, which he chops to the ground. His father returns from the fields and finds his favorite cherry tree lying down and says, who has done such a terrible thing? And young George steps forward and said, father, I cannot tell a lie. You know that I cannot tell a lie. I cut down the cherry tree with my little hatchet. And immediately the anger, this is the way it's first told, I looked it up, drained from his father's face. And he said, oh, my son, your honesty is worth more than a thousand cherry trees to me. Yea, though those cherry trees had blossoms of silver and leaves of purest gold. 
It's a great story, right? It captures your imagination. Um, unfortunately, it probably never happened. The story was never written down or told during George Washington's lifetime. The first time it was written down was in Parson Weems' biography, and then only in the fifth edition. Um, now, I'm, I'm sure that George Washington was a, was a very honest man, and certainly this story has good things to teach us about honesty, but it's, it's probably a legend. But more to the point of this sermon, um, it's also exactly the kind of story that we like to talk about and we like to tell about our forefathers. When we will tell stories of the people who founded the institutions that matter to us, whether that's a school or a country or even a sports team, we like to tell these great stories of these people's excellence and strength and honesty. I remember the same thing happened to me when I was a little boy back in Canada, surrounded by Dutch people. I had a very Dutch eighth grade teacher, and man, did he like to tell stories of the Dutch founders and how they were just a little bit better, right? Rembrandt, the greatest painter who ever lived, he would say. Michael de Ruyter, the greatest sailor who ever lived. Those are the kind of stories we like to tell about our founders. Their strength, their honesty, their excellence. And we tell them so that we know that we owe a debt to the past and so that we may be inspired to go and do likewise. Thinking about that human tendency to tell those sorts of stories about our founders makes this story all the more remarkable. Is Peter a founding father of our faith? Would he rise to the level of founder in the Christian faith? Yeah, absolutely, right? I mean, he, in the Gospels already, he's clearly one of the lead disciples. And then when you get to the book of Acts, he sort of rises above all the other apostles in his authority. He's definitely a founder. Is this one of the most well-known stories about Peter? One of the essential Peter stories? Again, yes. I think arguably this is the most well-known story about Peter. And yet... It is so totally different than the kinds of stories we usually tell about our forebears. It's not a story of strength and excellence. It's a story of complete and utter failure. And not only that, it looks like it may well be a story that Peter tells on himself. Think about it, at least in Matthew's account, who, who would be there to pass this story on? Who would tell this story? It's either Peter or Jesus, right? Jesus is there. I can't imagine Jesus after the resurrection sidling up to Matthew and saying, hey, Matthew, you'll never guess what Peter did. <laughs> I think it's much more likely that, that Peter told it. That he sat everyone down and said, guys, I got something to tell you, and I'm not proud of it. And with his voice shaking, he told them the whole sordid story. And it is a sordid story. Peter looks very bad in this story. No punches are pulled. With each denial, things get a little worse. He digs himself a little deeper. Let me try to show you that. So in the first denial, servant girl comes up to him and says, I, didn't I see you with Jesus? And he says, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Now notice what Peter's doing here. He's playing weaselly truth games, okay? 
He's doing that thing that people do when they don't want to lie officially, but they also don't want the truth to come out, right? Peter doesn't really lie here. He just says, I don't know what you're talking about. He doesn't say I wasn't with Jesus, right? He gives himself some plausible deniability. So if someone confronts him later, he can say, oh, I, I never said I denied Jesus. I, I didn't hear what she was saying. I misunderstood her, right? So he doesn't look good when he's playing this truth game. But after he puts off the first servant girl, unfortunately another servant girl comes up and now he can't play that game anymore. And now he denies. He says, I don't know the man. And he does it this time with an oath. Now the Bible doesn't record the oath, but it must have been something like, I swear by the holy tabernacle itself, I do not know this man. So the denial's bad, but what about that oath? What did Jesus say about oaths? Right? Matthew 5, verse 33 said, don't do them. He was really clear about them. Don't swear by the temple. Don't swear by, don't make oaths. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. You remember that, right? Peter must have known that, right? He's been following Jesus. He's heard Jesus preach many, many times. I'm sure he knew very well Jesus' instruction here. And yet, when a little pressure comes on him, not only does he deny Jesus, but he denies Jesus in a way that flies in the face of everything he's been taught. A little pressure, and he just starts throwing all the Jesus stuff overboard, right? Finally, the third denial. This time it's not a servant girl, this time it's a whole group of people who come up to him. And this time his denial comes with, uh, he swears and he curses. And what does that mean? Who, who is who is Peter cursing? Well, it's probably him drawing curses on himself. And, and let me explain that. Sometimes, and you see this in the Psalms actually, people in order to show their earnestness and that, you know, I'm really serious about this, would speak a self-imprecation, a self-curse to prove the truth of what they were saying. So Psalm 7 says this, Lord, if there's blood on my hands, may my enemy catch up to me and may he trample me to the ground. May I be accursed if I'm not telling the truth. So Peter probably said something, I, like, I do not know this man and if I'm telling a lie, may I be struck by lightning, may God strike me dead right here where I stand. That's what it means he called down curses which is about as complete a denial as you can get. I think you will agree. It also makes you think of something else interesting. Did Jesus ever talk about the consequences if someone denied him or disowned him? Do you remember that? He did. It's less well known. Matthew 10, verse 33. He says this, Whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Jesus says, whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. So by Jesus' own standard, what Peter does here three times is a damnable offense. No wonder Peter is weeping bitterly. This is not a story of a few white lies that was Peter told to get himself out of a sticky spot. This is a story of complete and utter failure which makes it all the more remarkable that this story persisted, right? Peter had power in the earthly church. He probably had some control about the kinds of stories that got told and the kinds of stories that didn't. And he let this story be told. And not only did he let it be told, he let it be told in all its gory detail. 
And obviously the Holy Spirit wanted this story to be told because this story appears not just in one gospel, it appears in all four gospels. If you know your Bible at all, you know that not all the passion accounts, the accounts of Jesus' death are exactly the same. Sometimes there's little differences. There aren't that many things that are in all four. Peter's denial is in all four of the gospels. Like the Holy Spirit really wants us to know this story. Why? A couple reasons. First, there are things that we can all learn by watching Peter fail. And I think that one of the things we can learn is the true location, the true place where our spiritual battles happen. I think you all know that Peter is uh, what you might call a spiritual romantic, right? He's got that swashbuckling spirit, right? He's the kind of guy who likes the big stage and the big proclamation. Lord, I will never leave you. Even if everybody else leaves you, I will die for you, Jesus. That's how spiritual romantics talk. Lord, if the soldiers of unbelief ever show up at my door and they point a gun at my chest and say to me, deny Jesus, I will say, Jesus is Lord, even as the bullets cut me down. Here I stand, I can do no other. That's how romantics talk. But the problem is, of course, that the battle between good and evil almost never looks like that. I'm guessing that very few of you here have ever had someone point a gun at your chest and say anything remotely like that. Who trips up Peter in these first two denials? Who causes Peter to fall? Is it a soldier with a sword threatening him? Is it some malicious and crafty high priest threatening him and asking him really tricky and difficult questions? Nope. It's a servant girl. An uneducated serpent girl just asking the most innocent questions ever. She's not threatening him in these questions. She's not trying to trap him. She said, weren't you with Jesus? It doesn't take a master tempter to bring Peter down. All it takes is a simple servant girl asking basic questions for him to spiral down into denial. And that reminds us that the great struggles against evil do not take place on a great stage in a dramatic way. They take place in the most ordinary, basic places of our life, the places where we live every single day, in our conversations at work, in the choices we make while we're scrolling through our phones, in the choices we make while we're on our computer at work, the great struggle between good and evil takes place in your kitchen, in your neighborhood with neighborly conversations, in the quotidian, the everyday places of life. Of course, the flip side is also true. It's true that it's in these ordinary places where the devil tempts us, but the flip side is also true that these are also the places where you can win great victories for God, where we can have great triumphs. Usually when we think of the great places where the struggle between good and evil takes place, where victories are won, we think of the, 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 the sort of the large places, the, the places that get in the news, maybe the culture war kinds of issues. We think that's, that's where the struggle between good and evil happens. But is it possible that in our fixation on culture war issues, we miss the opportunities for doing good that are right there at hand and the people right in front of us? 
Maybe we need to put down our phone and not read that article that we know is going to get us outraged and make us mad. And maybe we need to put that down and just talk to our spouse. Or call up that friend who we know would love a call from us. Or say to our kid, hey, let's still walk the dog together. Maybe we need to spend less time watching the news and reading online articles and more time just loving the people who God puts in front of us right now. Don't get me wrong, attention to these big picture culture war issues is really important, right? I'm not saying that's not important. But think about it. What changed you? Was it articles about the culture war? What formed you? No, it was people in your life who loved you well in the small places of life. That's what made you who you are. That's what changed you. So that's one reason I think that Peter's denial is featured so prominently. It teaches us about the way we are tempted and the way where the struggle between good and evil happens. But that's not the most important reason I think this story's here. I think the Holy Spirit make this story a foundational forefather story to teach us that the church and the people who follow Jesus, we live a completely different way than the rest of the institutions of this world. We tell a different kind of founder story because we are a different kind of people. We have a different kind of power. We have a different view of success. And we have a different kind of hope. We are a community, when we tell these stories, that says failure is part of all our stories. Both of us as individuals and as a community, failure is a part of our story. No matter how hard we try, no matter how good our intentions are, we will fall flat in our face. We will fail. Now, that's not all the Bible says about us. The Bible doesn't say to you, oh, you're all miserable failures. It mentions our failure, but the Bible says a lot of great things about human beings too, right? We're made in the image of God. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're a little lower than the angels. The Bible's really positive about who we are and how we're loved by God, but the Bible also says again and again, and all these stories you've been studying, studying not just today, but throughout this sermon series, failure's part of our story. No matter how hard we try, we will fall. Now, with a book like the Bible so full of all these failure stories, you might think, well, this must be a terribly depressing book that you get through it and you feel like, ugh. You know that's not true. This is a book of wild hope. This is a book of gospel hope. How can a book that has founding stories of failure be so full of hope? Well, because at the very same moment that Peter is failing terribly with servant girls, in the next room over, Jesus is being faithful. And he's not faced with servant girls. He's faced with the high priest. He's faced with soldiers who will slap him and press a crown of thorns on his head. He's faced with false witnesses. He's faced with mockery and ridicule. And he will be utterly faithful because nothing will stop him from accomplishing his goal, which is laying down his life so that we can be saved. Here's a remarkable thing that I still can't make complete sense of. Remember what I said Jesus said about people who disown him? Right? Anyone who disowns me before others, I will disown before my father. Peter plainly disowns Jesus here. It's the same verb that Jesus uses when he makes that saying. 
plainly disowns Jesus. Does Jesus disown Peter before his father? No. Jesus dies for him and then reconciles, brings Peter back into the fold. Doesn't even follow through. It's amazing grace that goes beyond what we could ask or imagine. That's why these failure stories are in our book. To teach us the truth, the deepest truth of who we are. The center of who we are, we're not successes, and we're not failures. We are broken sinners, saved by the amazing grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the center of who you are and who I am. I think I may have mentioned this years and years ago, but in my old church, Woodlawn Christian Reformed Church, years ago, we were trying to come up with a tagline for our community, right? That's what institutions did. You know what a tagline is? It's a pithy little phrase that's supposed to sum up what the, what the community's about. A grave has a tagline, in the city, under the cross, okay? So Woodlump was trying to come up with a tagline, and people were throwing out different things, and they were saying things like, uh, Woodlawn CRC, a family of disciples, or Woodlawn CRC, loving God and loving our neighbors, kind of the things you'd expect. My favorite tagline was given my friend, by my friend Dick Housecamp, who's now in heaven, who said, no, this should be our tagline. Woodlawn CRC, a bunch of ornery cusses saved by grace. <laughs> now, I was in favor of that. I thought that would look great on our stationery. <laughs> See, you laughed when I said that. And everybody laughs when I tell that story. And, and Woodlawn laughed when they heard that story. Why did they laugh? Why did they laugh when they just got called ornery cusses? Because the back half of that phrase is so much stronger than the first half. Because the grace of God is so much stronger than our failure and our orneriness. When we realize the depth and the width and the height and the eternal dimensions of the grace that God gives us in Jesus Christ, even our failure seems like a light and momentary trouble, as Paul says. Here's the truth of who you are. You are not successes. You are not failures. The grave church, you are a bunch of ornery cusses, saved by the grace of Jesus Christ your Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that um, your gospel of grace comes through on every page of your good book. Thank you that after a sermon series on failure, that we don't feel overwhelmed by uh, our weakness, but we feel overjoyed by your saving grace, Lord. I pray that as we go into this week together as a family, we may find ourselves at the foot of the cross rejoicing in what you have done for us. In Christ's name, amen.